Let's turn to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14. As we uh, work through the last six sections of Mark's uh, gospel here, um, I mentioned last week that there we're going we're to see six different roles that Jesus actually fulfilled in that last week. And the, the one last week that we looked at was um, the sacrificial lamb. We saw how that played out. This morning we're on the second one, which is the stricken shepherd. The stricken shepherd. The concept of Israel being a flock um, of sheep that's cared for by a shepherd is found throughout the Old Testament. Most often, God is referred to as their shepherd in the Old Testament. However, at other times, King David was referred to as their shepherd. Um, But it's ultimately a descendant of King David that the Old Testament describes as the ultimate shepherd. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 34 says this, "...then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David." And he will feed them. Now that's a reference to a descendant of David, not specifically David himself. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. My servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. So what the Old Testament promises is that there will ultimately be a king who will serve as a shepherd to Israel as a flock of sheep. That's why Jesus actually refers to himself as the Good Shepherd. I want you to turn to John chapter 10 with me. John chapter 10. Keep your finger at Mark 14, but John chapter 10. I'm going to read about seven or eight verses here. John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and is not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me that I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So what we have here with Jesus is a reference to himself not just being the shepherd of Israel, the good shepherd, but he makes a rather startling claim here that he's going to be stricken, that he's going to have to lay down his life. Now, that shouldn't be that much of a surprise to the disciples. I think it was. But um, it really should not have been because Zechariah chapter 13 describes this shepherd being struck. We're going to turn there as well. Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13, starting in verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, 
that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. That is appropriately referred to as the stricken shepherd. Basically what God says there is that he's going to strike his shepherd. It is an act of God, ultimately meaning it's part of his plan. So it's orchestrated by him. The passage also indicates that God's purpose in doing so is to test Israel just as he tests silver and gold. It means to purify them. So we see that God will orchestrate the striking of the shepherd. He will use it to test Israel, to refine Israel. In fact, in the text we just looked at, it says basically two-thirds of them will disappear and only one-third will be refined. But then finally, we see that this will come about with Jesus Christ as we put all the pieces together. So in our passage today, we see this event actually being fulfilled as Jesus is portrayed as not just the shepherd, but the shepherd who is struck down while his followers are all scattered. So that's what we're looking at today in Mark chapter 14. Go ahead and turn back there with me. We see that the first thing Jesus does is he predicts his abandonment, starting in verse 27. After the Passover meal, Jesus takes his disciples out to the Mount of Olives, and he warns them that they are all about ready to fall away. Look at verses 26 through 38 here. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. That's from Zechariah. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the very same thing. So the context indicates here that the twelve disciples were with him. It appears that they are the only ones that are with them at this point. And then Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13 here, as the fulfillment is as about what is actually about to take place. When we look at the words that Jesus uses here, this isn't a mere running away. It's an abandonment. It's a falling away. The Greek word that he uses here refers to putting a stumbling block in somebody's way. In fact, the word is actually used to describe that stick that you use to make a trap when you have like the box traps and you have the little stick there that you put a rope onto or something to trip it. Well, as the animal comes in and trips that little wire or you pull it, the stick falls down. Well, the word that he uses here comes from that little stick. Now, it's not used that way in the scriptures. It's used metaphorically in the scriptures to refer to a stumbling block or somebody, something that causes somebody to sin, to do something they wouldn't normally do. And so Jesus uses that word to describe what they are all about ready to do. And notice here that he says it's all of them. All of them will stumble. All of them are going to ultimately abandon him. Now, the good thing about this text is that it tells us that this falling away is going to be a temporary thing. And we know that just historically. We know what happened to the disciples on this particular night. They all scattered, but we also know that they all ultimately return, with the exception of Judas, who wasn't here. The 12 here is likely a reference to the 11. Judas is already gone. We know that he's going to show up in a little bit. 
first thing Jesus does here is he tells him that after he rises from the dead, verse 28, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Just that little statement that he's going to go ahead to Galilee and join them means that he'll see them again. So we know that it's not a permanent abandonment. It's also evident from the long conversation Jesus had, there's something that's not presented to us here in the book of Mark. It's only found in the Gospel of John. And it's this long discussion that takes place over two chapters between Jesus and the disciples. I won't take you there because it's an awful lot to read, but I'll summarize it for you. In John chapter 14, Jesus encourages the disciples to not lose heart when he tells them that he's going away. As you can imagine, he just spent three, three and a half years with these men. They expect him to be the Messiah, the King. They're not really expecting him to die and to be brutalized, murdered. And so he is dealing with their loss of heart. And so he's encouraging them, don't lose heart. And he even tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and get you and take you to be with me always. That's John chapter 14. In John chapter 15, he actually reminds them that they were his friends. It's a term that a term of endearment. He even goes on to say, look, you didn't choose me as much as I chose you. What a great way to encourage his disciples, to remind them that he would be back for them, and that, look, you may think you chose me, but I actually chose you. He later says in John chapter 15 that they're going to be warned, that they're going to be hated because of him. But he also then says, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So that I'll always be with you, even here, when I might not physically be here, I will be here spiritually with you, because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who will now indwell you. He then actually prayed for the disciples, and he prayed for those that would come to know Christ through those disciples. And so all of these things indicate that this falling away, this scattering of the sheep was going to be a temporary thing. But nonetheless, it would be a scattering of the sheep. I want you to turn back to Mark chapter 14 with me here. Obviously, Peter and the disciples object when Jesus says, you're all going to scatter. Look at verse uh, 29. But Peter said to him, even though, um, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing, meaning all the disciples. So Peter basically says, I, I won't do that. I won't scatter. I, I'm, I'm here for good, Jesus. No matter what happens, I'm willing to die if I have to. I'll go to prison if I have to. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus and Peter have had this discussion. In fact, earlier, book of Luke Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded to sift not just him, but all of the disciples. The you that's used there in Luke is plural. So the fact that Satan would ask permission to sift them like wheat from the chaff means that Satan has asked the Lord to have special access to torment the disciples. And Peter's a part of that. Peter argued at that time that he'd be willing to go to prison. But Jesus said, no, you'll deny me. But he then prayed for, Jesus, or for Peter's faith and also said that it would turn back. Rather interesting, because Luke tells us that Peter would ultimately turn back to Christ. So what this stuff indicates to us is that this is a real abandonment. What Jesus is predicting is not just a mere running away. It is a literal abandonment of Christ out of fear of the Romans and other things 
having their faith shattered. But the good news is that it's only temporary and we get a foreshadowing of that. So a real abandonment, a real running away, but again, more than that, but only a temporary thing. So what we find here is that Jesus is actually laying down what was about to happen, which is that the Lord is going to strike the shepherd and his followers are going to scatter, just as was prophesied, not just by Jesus himself, but also by the Old Testament. What happens next is Jesus actually goes off by himself and prepares to be struck down. I want you to look at verses 32 and following. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. Now this is basically a garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. The exact location isn't known. You can go to Israel today, and there's a place they say they think it might be, but the exact location is unknown. But as they enter the garden, Jesus basically instructs most of his disciples to stay behind, to sit there as he and the others go forward. And so he takes just three disciples with him, He's done this before. He did it with the, if you remember when they when he brought the dead girl back to life, he only took three of them with him. We have the transfiguration where the same three went up to see that. So for some reason he tells the bulk of them to stay back and he only takes three with him. It doesn't really indicate why except that these three ultimately would serve as probably the most influential leaders within the church. Um, one of them, James, is killed very early on, but... Peter and John become pillars in the church. And so it may be that's why Jesus separated them. Some have argued that maybe Jesus needed um, their moral support. They were his closest inner circle of three. And so as Jesus went on to pray, um, some have said, well, he took those three because he needed their moral support. That might be true. Um, but what's interesting is as Jesus goes off to pray, he actually comes back to check up on them three different times, or twice at least. It's, it looks as if maybe it was as important for them to go off and pray privately as three individuals as it was for Jesus to go pray. Maybe because Jesus knew the pressures they would be under. But Jesus tells them to pray that they might not enter into temptation for the time that was about to come. So for whatever reason, Jesus goes off. He leaves most of the disciples behind. He then takes these three, sits them down, tells them to pray then he goes off by himself, verses 33 through 36. He took Peter, James, and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch, meaning to stay alert. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And as he was saying, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep praying, or keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation, that the spirit is willing, but the fresh flesh is weak. And he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them asleep, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get, us, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. 
So we find that the Lord goes off here and prays by himself. Look at some of the words that are used to describe what he was going through at this time. The word distressed refers to an alarm or shock. It's often used with a sense of fear, believe it or not. It says he was troubled. That refers to deep distress, actually anguish, anguish that you can feel physically. Deeply grieved means to be filled with sorrow. But Jesus says here that he was so grieply, or he was grieved so deeply that it was almost to the point of death. That suggests that Jesus was being stretched to his limits emotionally, physically, mentally, almost to the point where his physical body could not take the anguish. Luke describes him as being in so much agony that he was sweating, either drops of blood or drops of sweat mixed with blood. That's an actual known medical condition. I was going to ask Sandy if she knew what the term was today, but um, hemohydrosis, I think is how you pronounce it. It's basically where the capillaries burst out of stress. And so when you sweat, there's actual blood that comes out with the sweat. And Luke describes it as literally dripping down and falling onto the ground. Yesterday when I was, I went out and I, it was the wrong day to do it, I went out and I chopped down two trees that were about 20 feet high. Um, They were, you know, the trunks were only about that big around, so they weren't, you know, big bushy trees, but they had enough on them. But um, I went out and I cut those down, then I trimmed a crabapple tree, and when I got done with that, I decided I had a, my riding lawnmower needed a part replaced on it, so I went into the shed to do that, and it's funny because I'd already taken off my one shirt and tossed it aside because it was literally completely soaked. So I put on a dry shirt, I went into the shed where it was a little bit cooler, I thought, and um, in the shade, and as I'm working on my riding lawnmower, <laughs> sweat kept dripping, literally dripping down and dropping on the stuff, and so then it gets all over the grease and everything else, and my hands are just covered almost slimy, you know, and I kept dripping out of my glasses, because when you're looking down, it drips inside the glasses, you know, and I'm trying to wipe that off on my shirt, you know, um, but literally it just kept dripping down, and that's the way that Luke describes Jesus. Doesn't say that it was because of heat. It might have been humid, we don't know. But the way it's described is that it was from stress, distress, agony, anguish. So after calling on his disciples to pray and stay alert, Jesus goes off a short distance by himself. It says that it's a stone's throw, according to Luke. So however you can throw a, however far you can throw a stone, that's where Jesus was. He's not sitting right with the three disciples. But you notice that it begins with Jesus addressing God the Father as Abba Father. That was a fairly common term used by the Jews. Now there's a, it makes for really good preaching when you describe it as Daddy. But it's not really accurate. Um, What's probably more accurate, that term was a term of deep affection. It was used of a father with his with his children, but not in the sense of daddy as much as father. Um, the best way for me to describe it is if you watch something like um, Little House on the Prairie or something of that nature back from you know the 1800s, and you see the way children oftentimes refer to their their parents, you know, as father, mother. It's a term of endearment, and that's kind of what Jesus did. Is it a is it a huge deal? No, except that in my mind, daddy is almost kind of a um, doesn't might show the fondness, but not as much the respect. And so one of the things that this term Abba represents is a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for, not just fondness for. 
And so, um, our, you know, a, a term much like, uh, again, referring to your dad as father, it not only shows a close fondness, but it also shows respect and admiration, respect for somebody. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And so he reaches out to the father, calls him Abba, Father. And there are two primary requests that he actually makes. They're very close to one another. The first one is rather general. And it likely refers to all of the events that are to follow, not just one specific event, but everything, the whole entire evening as it's going to play out. But he prays that this hour might not pass him by. The hour obviously refers to his betrayal, arrest, and then being handed over to sinners and all of the events that are about to take place. The second request that he makes is a little more specific, and he says that you might remove this cup from me. And so the question is, what does this cup refer to? Well, it's pretty clear in the scriptures that cup there refers to the wrath of God. It's described that way in the Old Testament. There's numerous references in both the Old Testament and the New Testament where God's wrath is likened to a cup being poured out. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says that God's wrath is revealed against sin. But then it says in 5.9 that we are saved from that wrath because of what Christ did in the shedding of his blood. So in other words, what Jesus is referring to here when he asked the Lord that this cup might pass from him is he's specifically referring to having the Lord's wrath poured out against him. I'm not sure that we truly comprehend or understand what that means. But seeing as Jesus himself was God, eternal with the Father... Jesus, beyond anybody else, would understand exactly what the wrath of God is. There's nobody living today that understands the wrath of God. There are dead people that likely understand the wrath of God. But there is no living human being that could adequately describe what it is like to be under the wrath of God. Except for Jesus. He knew. He had never experienced it. But as God, he certainly knew. And so he basically looks up at the Father and says, if there's any way for this to pass, let it pass. We see this expressed in Jesus' words when he's on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's exactly what Jesus is thinking about. That at some point on the cross he will face the wrath of God. Total, complete separation from the Father. While we can't downplay the horrific suffering Jesus was about to experience, things like the crucifixion, we can't discount the emotional toll that it took on him. All of that ultimately paled with what he was about to experience by taking the sin of the world on his shoulders experiencing the wrath of God and total separation. I've never seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie. Some of you may have. Um, Part of the reason I've never seen it is more because um, I don't necessarily get moved or motivated by that. Um, I know that it was horrific. I think it places too much emphasis on the physical suffering and not enough on the spiritual It's a glorification in many respects of the physical suffering of Christ, which the Catholics focus on. In fact, that's why Jesus is still on the cross. 
in their churches and they use a crucifix instead of an empty cross. It's the passion of Christ. Um, so I've never necessarily been moved. I'm not saying it's bad or wrong. I think it's important that we understand what he went through physically. Certainly it's important that we understand that. In fact, we'll spend a little bit of time on that in one of the future things here as we describe crucifixion. But the thing we have to remember about this is there are two assumptions that Jesus makes here as he does this. The first assumption is that he knows that God can do all things. Look at verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So he fully recognizes that God is totally, completely in control. If the Father says, no, I don't need to send my son to the cross, then the Father can do it. If the Father says, my son needs to go to the cross, then he knows that that's what the Father wants. He says, all things are possible for you. This isn't an issue of you can't do anything, Father. You can do whatever. But the second assumption he makes is that he realized, he knew, that what he wanted did not trump the Father's will. Notice he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. So there's two assumptions that Jesus comes to with the Father here. First is that he can do everything. All we have to do is ask. But the second assumption is that what he desired, what he wanted at that particular moment, was not as important as what the Lord willed or needed to accomplish. Uh, it, It gets a little dicey here. Um, I, when I read this, I, I sincerely believe that Jesus did not want to go to the cross. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked that the hour could pass him by. It's foolish to think that, well, you know, he really knew what was going on. I, Jesus did not want to go to the cross. No one would. Jesus did not want to be separated from the Father. Nobody would. We have to remember that while he was God, he was also human. With all the same pain receptors we have, with all the emotional torment, mental capacity to suffer and to struggle as we do. He clearly did not want, desire, to go to the cross. However, he was committed to serve his Heavenly Father above and beyond what he personally wanted. Now, that does not mean that Jesus did not want to save us, because you notice that what he says was, I lay down my life. Nobody took it from me. I did it on my own. In fact, John chapter 10, verse 18 says just that. Nobody's taking my life. Nobody's making me do anything. That was commitment to his Heavenly Father. So we have this interesting dichotomy, this struggle of, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to suffer physically. I don't want to suffer spiritually with being separated from my Father. I don't even want to see my sheep scattered. And the turmoil and the distress. Remember, he spent three chapters trying to encourage them. Don't be so dismayed. That was a concern of Christ. None of that did he want to see happen. But, he said, I will set all that aside to accomplish your will, not simply what I want. So there was a determination by Christ to do exactly what God the Father wanted. Do you think there's a lesson in that for us? 
I mean, how often do we get discouraged because we pray for something that we want and the Lord doesn't do it? And we wonder if He loves us or if He cares for us or why He doesn't do this or that for us, but He does it for other people. Paul himself, with his thorn in the flesh, we have no idea what it was, but said he prayed three times and finally after three times he said, you know what? I'm learning to be content. Obviously the Lord did not choose to heal Paul of his thorn in the flesh. And Paul took that as the will of the Father. We see the same thing here with Jesus, where he was willing to set aside the spheres, the anxieties, the stress, the physical pain, the separation from the Lord, all because the Father willed it. And again, the lesson for us is, we got to have the same commitment to set aside the things we want for what the Lord wants. That's not easy to do. It wasn't easy for Christ. It's not easy for us, but I think it's a good lesson for us here. So after Jesus goes off and he prays and spends this time, it looks like it's probably hours. We know that there was at least an hour period of prayer in the first instance here because it says he came back after an hour and found the disciples asleep. I would assume the second time is probably the same. So we've got at least two to three hours of Jesus praying intently to the Father, preparing himself to be struck down. So, it plays out exactly as we might expect here. Look at verse 43. The shepherd ultimately is abandoned, just as he says, by his sheep. Verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, which is actually a term of endearment. Isn't that just a kick in the teeth? Rabbi! And he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. What's he referring to there? That the shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will scatter. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. I don't get that last two verse, folks. I hear Dustin laughing over here. You could do a whole routine, to be real honest, on, on little things like that that are somewhat comical that just make no sense. I don't know if God's got a sense of humor with this, but here's this man who shows up with just a sheet wrapped around him. I would assume maybe because he was sleeping in the evening and this all happened overnight. So he goes and for some reason Mark seems fit to put this in, but he tries to run away, they grab the sheet, and he has to run away naked. Which, to me, gives a pretty good indication that he didn't want to be there. Maybe out of threat from the Romans or whatever, but um, again, we'll, we'll leave that discussion for another time. There's probably some deep theological truth to that. I don't know what that is, um, but somehow... I'll walk you through it. There we go. Yeah, I'll leave that one to Dustin. 
For the sake of time, I won't spend a whole lot of time with this section here except to highlight a few things. First, Jesus' prediction that his disciples would all abandon him came true here. Notice it says they all fled. Now we know that one disciple and Peter sort of follow behind and watch as Jesus is arrested and taken to um, Caiaphas' house um, and then is tried by the Sanhedrin. Peter stays off sort of in the distance and watches. We don't know what happens to the other disciple, but they ultimately are keeping their distance. And we know that Peter ultimately um, does exactly what Jesus says that he's going to do, which is to deny Christ three times. But they all flee. They all run away, just as Jesus had predicted. All three of the synoptic gospels indicate that a large multitude of people accomplish or accompanied Judas here with the religious leaders. This was a huge mob of people. In fact, it says that there was a Roman cohort there. Now we we don't know how many exactly, but a typical Roman cohort was six hundred soldiers. I mean, they brought the masses to arrest Jesus. There may have been intent to arrest others. It's unclear. You wouldn't need 600 Roman soldiers plus all the chief priests and and scribes and a mob of other people to arrest one man. So we don't really know, but my suspicion is as, as these Romans guards show up, everyone's a little freaked out. The other thing we see here is they come with with swords and clubs specifically to treat him as if he were a criminal. They expected a battle of some sorts. Jesus has never doesn't done anything to indicate that he was willing to fight. But that's how they came. Now, in Luke chapter 22, we see that some of the disciples asked Jesus if they should attack. So they were at least initially ready to pull out their weapons. In fact, we know one instance here where somebody pulls out his sword, slices off the ear of the chief priest's slave. Another gospel, we're told that Jesus puts the ear back and heals it. So they had this initial boldness, this initial... um, fight within them, but it actually evaporates pretty quickly because as soon as Jesus is actually arrested, what do they do? They'll flee. They all run away. I think there might even be some practical application in that for us. You know that oftentimes our willpower doesn't match our intent? We intend to do something, we're all bold about it, but then when push comes to shove... We just don't have the strength to do it, or the willingness to do it. I think about sharing the gospel. How many times do we talk or think about sharing our faith, and when push comes to shove, maybe we don't really say anything because we're a little embarrassed, or we think it might make the situation awkward, or maybe the person will be a little offended if we say something. And so our intent is good. We intend to speak up but then we don't for whatever reason. Paul himself says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I think there's a reason why he said that. Because some are ashamed of the gospel. So he did it as a reminder. So we have these disciples here making these bold claims and promises to Jesus only to find out that when push came to shove, they abandoned him. And they abandoned him at his time of greatest need. In fact, one of the most heartbreaking things in the scripture, um, at least from an emotional standpoint, we'll touch on this in a future week here. There's a little tiny sentence, a little phrase. When Peter denies Christ, he's kind of out in this area and he can, he can see Christ. He's at a distance. 
And when that rooster crows, it says that Christ turns and looks at Peter. Just looks at him. And at that moment, Peter runs out and goes out onto the porch where Christ can't see him anymore. Now, as we talked about here, fortunately, this abandonment, this running away, is only temporary. It's not permanent. I don't think Jesus was shocked by their behavior. Remember, he said, look, I'm going to tell you right now, some things are going to go down tonight. They're going to come arrest me. The Lord's going to strike the shepherd. And you're all going to flee. But, after all this kind of works itself out, I'm going to show back up in Galilee. I'm going to see you there. And oh, by the way, I'll leave again. I'm going to go make a house, come back and get you, bring you back. Even tells Peter, I'm praying for you, Peter. You're going to deny me three times, but I'm praying for you, but he'll turn back. And we see that when Jesus shows up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and specifically calls out Peter, let's go for a walk. And he talks with Peter, who had gone back to fishing, and tells him instead he's going to be a fisher of men going forward. Tells him to feed the flock, take over where the good shepherd had to leave off. So we know that it's a temporary thing. So what does all this do for us here? I think one of the things that, that I appreciate about these different roles that we see Christ is each one has its place both in the Old Testament and the New. The best shepherd is one that's willing, Jesus said, to lay down his life for the sheep. In fact, he gives us the parable of the hired hands that simply come in and they take a job to shepherd the sheep, but when things really get gritty and when things really come down to push to shove, they just run off because they're hired hands. Jesus wasn't like that. He was a shepherd who genuinely loves and cares for his sheep to the point where as we see him struggling in the wilderness, knowing what he would have to face, he didn't abandon the sheep even knowing that the sheep would abandon him. And I think another life lesson for us in that is, I know in my own life there are times where, um, I wouldn't say that I've abandoned Christ, but there's times where I've turned my back. I remember a time in college when I was a leader with Campus Crusade for Christ. I was up in front of people all the time. And I remember a, a period I went through where I developed a sour attitude towards some things, and while I was still walking and trying to look like a Christian, I wasn't really behaving like one, and I had to have a campus leader pull me aside, and I remember getting all puffed up and arrogant and proud with him. But some of the words that he shared with me stuck, and I realized that I was offending Christ by my behavior and the things that I was doing. Christ welcomed me back with, with open arms. You know? Um, he was still a shepherd to a little lost sheep like me. I would say that throughout my life there have been times where I've done things that I'm not necessarily proud of. We all struggle sometimes. We do things we shouldn't do or we struggle with sin. And what do we have? A shepherd who loves us so much that he not only laid down his life for us, but even knowing that we would still do those things, much like these scattered disciples, who he said, you'll leave me. 
But he still was gracious and kind. He still laid down his life for the very ones that would abandon him. Think about that for a minute. Christ loves us so much that he was willing to go and die for us, knowing that even after we came to Christ, there would be times where we would scatter, times where we would not necessarily honor him the way we should, and yet he still did it anyway. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's a pretty amazing shepherd. And so, again, one of the things I love about these little snippets of these different roles he fulfills is each one has kind of gives us a unique look into who he was and his character. And this one is the shepherd. I mean, man, the fact that he's a shepherd, which is this amazing, gracious picture of leadership and and care, but also somebody that took that job seriously enough to give himself up, knowing that the sheep would still be stupid little sheep sometimes. And here he is. He prayed for Peter. I imagine Jesus is up there praying for us. Encouraging us. When he prayed to the Father, there were some neat things. As you look at the high priestly prayer and he prays for us, um, the things that he prays for regarding us tells you he really understood us and knew what we would need. So as he's up there now directing the Holy Spirit, he's doing all those things as the shepherd as a stricken shepherd. I'm going to go ahead and just leave it with that for now. But like I said, I love these pictures that we're seeing of him. And we'll continue on with a few more of these in the next few weeks.